Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Peter Moyle, and he'll be answering your question on uh, conservation of fisheries. The show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Peter a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box there to send us your question. Receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right column of our website. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded. will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Feedspot, Player FM, or any of the other platforms you might be using. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the distribution platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do so, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing as well as FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now. We've got some links right there on the home page that will direct you to sharing and uh, you can do it right now. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted, and it's the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing businesses ask about fly fishing. Douglas Outdoors is a manufacturer of premium quality fly rods, raising the expectations that anglers should expect in componentry, design, engineering, craftsmanship, and in turn performance. Led by head rod designer Fred Contui, Douglas has achieved award-winning rods featuring eye-opening strength-to-weight ratios and dialed-in technique-specific actions and tapers that cater to a host of different species. Douglas Outdoors has a truly deep lineup of rods, ranging from 12 weights for monster tarpon to two weights for tiny brook trout, and everything in between. Check them out at douglasoutdoors.com. Again, that's douglasoutdoors.com. Before we introduce Peter, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Peter's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form. We'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a book courtesy of Stackpole Books. And you can find out more about what Stackpole has to offer at stackpolebooks.com. And they, they just have a, a wealth of uh, uh, books that they've published in, uh, on fly fishing and fishing. So check them out, and uh, we'll be giving one of their books away tonight. Um, and here's how you can win that book. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. And the question will be about something that we talk about during the show. So you must submit your answer along with your name and location using that text box on our homepage. It's the same text box that you can ask questions in during the show. So listen carefully, take some good notes, and uh, type fast, <laughs> and hopefully you'll win a book from Stackpole uh, Books. Our guest tonight is Peter Moyle. Peter has, was brought up at, uh, fishing in Minnesota lakes after acquiring an MS in conservation from Cornell University, studying brook trout in, in the Adirondack Lakes, he returned to Minnesota and its lakes for a PhD. He moved to California in 1969 and began his studies on the ecology, conservation, and status of California's freshwater fisheries, including salmon and trout. In 1972, he moved to the University of California, Davis, where he still serves 
as an emeritus professor. He established his reputation as a fish biologist by authoring a definitive book on California fishes, Inland Fishes of California, which was revised and greatly expanded for publication in 2002. One of his early projects was a study of fish in the lower McLeod River, which showed that uh, bull trout had been um, removed from the water, from the river in California, but the rainbow trout and, and brown trout in the river could sustain a catch-and-release fishery. And the McLeod became one of the first rivers to have such a designation in California. Peter has also co-authored several other books, including Environmental Flow Assessment, Flood Plains, Processes and Management for Ecosystem Services, and Sustin Marsh Ecology History and Possible Futures. Peter, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Sure, thank you. Glad to be yeah. here. Good to have you. And uh, and we've got lots to talk about um, here tonight about conservation and fisheries and, and how you've uh, made a, a, an important uh, mark in this, and particularly California, which is kind of your 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 conservation ground, so to speak, I take it. But, uh, it. It certainly is. That's where I've spent my career. You know, it's such a big state. It's hard to send there's so many problems. That you, it, no, there's no no way to see the end of them. Yeah, no, yeah. And, and I mean, it's like three states in one, right? Uh, and has such diverse, you know, fisheries and, and everything else that... Uh, um, to deal with, uh, certainly. And everybody um, wants the water. That's the problem. <laughs> you know, that, that's in every uh, every part of the, the world, there's no more water, but there's just more and more people. Uh, we're finding that, you know, no matter where we go, right? Um, that's for sure. And uh, people are kind of finding uh, out about some areas that weren't quite accessible, accessible in the past. Um, I was just down... We took a drive from Colorado down to Las Vegas um, to help um, my mother-in-law down there. And uh, on the way back, we stopped at Lee's Ferry and visited uh, Terry Gunn and Wendy Gunn there. And uh, sure. now they're hmm. running uh, shuttle services for kayaks up uh, Glen Canyon. And, uh, and a lot of kayakers are coming down there. And he says it's just exploded in the past year. So there's another use that didn't even exist two years ago, and now people are discovering it. So, yeah. No more water, but more people, and uh, get <laughs> a basic better, problem. Right? Yeah. yeah, I always talk about people as fishing people for water. So, pardon me, uh, you cut out there for a second. Yes, yeah, I always think of fish as uh, people as competing with fish for water. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, um, when did you first get interested in biology? Well. Um, I had the good fortune, to, you know, being, as you mentioned, I was brought up in Minnesota, but both my parents were biologists, and we lived on one of the larger lakes in Minnesota, Lake Minnetonka. Uh, so I can never remember not being out on the water fishing, looking at birds, looking at bugs. And my father was a, a fisheries biologist for the Minnesota Department of Conservation, so I went out with him quite a bit as a kid. Um, so it just seemed sort of natural. To go in that direction. Although I must admit, my older brother went to college and majored in Chinese and became a diplomat. So you just never know. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Yeah, that's quite a departure from the family line yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he so, had. To, he he was the rebel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's always one, right? <laughs> uh, 
uh, yeah, I was an only child, so I had to play both roles. Uh, <laughs> the wise one and the rebel. <laughs> That's hard, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy. Um, so what was, you know, so you pretty much knew early on you were going towards biology. What, what were some of the steps in your life's journey that got you to UC Davis? Uh, I'm sure there were swings in between there. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, it's really ha having a, a great childhood in which uh, science was encouraged, looking at things was encouraged was certainly part of it. I can remember always being very happy to be out with my parents looking at things. Um, but I generally had good experiences in, in the, at the university, too. So I'll tell you, one, one of the key experiences I had was, was becoming a seasonal aide for the Montana Department of Fish and Game in, at, in summer after my freshman year in college. I had uh, my father was a well-known fisheries biologist, and uh, I, he was he always complained he trained he, he would get somebody well trained to work with him in, in in Minnesota, and they would go off and get a better job someplace else. Well, the my first boss in Montana was Art Whitney, who my father had been his first boss, so I think he sort of figured it was payback time, but. Uh, <laughs> I was just, it was my first experience of going to rafting. We were rafting and, and uh, fly fishing for cutthroat trout and tagging them. Uh, I was the the, uh, the most inexperienced person they had, so I would be be chosen last for every uh, every job they had, which was great because I got to do everything. But that also convinced me that, that you know being a fisheries biologist was all about being in nice places, looking at beautiful fish and. Uh, just getting out and doing things. When um, was your, I, I guess, working in, as a uh, fish biologist, conservation comes hand in hand, I suppose. But was there some point in time where you kind of focused on that and said, hey, this is something that I need to do, uh, a mission? Well, for that, that's what graduate school all about. I had the good fortune, and after for two years, after being working for Montana for two summers, I, I got a job in Alaska working on salmon up there, and that was what really convinced me to do it, uh, to become a biologist. Uh, I was already a zoology major, but then I had to figure out where to go for graduate school, and Cornell University had a program in conservation that fit my needs pretty well, and I worked for a fisheries biologist there. So it was, uh, you know, all these things sort of blended together. I was just very fortunate that I didn't have any hard decisions to make. They just sort of came <laughs> and one after the other, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, was it when you actually started kind of leading some of these projects, you know, actively? Was that at UC Davis more so than? Yeah, well, I've always been pretty independent, and actually, my very first project I did independently was actually my master's thesis at Cornell University, where I. Uh, uh, my major professor there didn't have any great ideas, and I was funded on a fellowship. So I could do a lot of what I wanted to do, uh, and I look, compared the behavior of brook trout of hatchery origin versus brook trout of wild origin. I spawned them, and we had a, I had a fish hatchery there on campus. We I spawned the wild fish and spawned the, uh, the the domesticated fish, then raised the eggs in a large aquaria that simulated a natural environment. And the result of that was it showed me that the differences between wild fish and hatchery fish, in this case, were, ge were genetic. So these fish, the hatchery fish, behaved like hatchery fish from the minute they hatched the eggs. They're up swimming around, looking around for food, 
Whereas the wild mm. fish, as soon as they hatch, would go huddle under cover, then come on, dash out and grab some food and go back again. So wow. I, I had a, sort of gave me a lifelong, uh, I don't want to say, a lifelong um, sort of distaste for hatchery fish. And even though they're very important in fisheries, <laughs> yeah. they yeah. clearly were domestic animals. They were not necessarily, they weren't really they wild animals. <laughs> bred into them, huh? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, you know, on the other hand, I also came to appreciate that these put-and-take fisheries, which is what the classic trout hatcheries were doing at that time, uh, you know, just you put you raise these trout in a hatchery to a catchable size, and then it, you you put them in places where people will catch them, realizing that if they don't catch them within a couple of weeks, they're likely to die. But that provided a recreation for people, as well as getting kids hooked on fishing, so to speak. Yeah. Because, you yeah. know, if you're a little kid and you want to get your kid interested in fishing, they've got to catch stuff. Yeah, um, and it's uh, attention span. A sure. fish does that. <laughs> We, uh, yeah, I took my, you know, we were talking before the show about my grandson, and I took him down the lake here this weekend, too, and uh, and he's not, uh, not can't pay enough attention to fly fish yet, but a little bobber yeah. and some power bait, power bait did it, and uh, so he caught a fish probably within the first 20 minutes, and uh, I said, okay, well, let's, uh, do you want to keep fishing? He says, no, I'm done. <laughs> so sure, yeah. Like, Hey, mission accomplished, you know. I caught my yeah, fish, yeah. I got my picture, and let's go hiking now. <laughs> you know, so attention span is short. But it keeps him interested because every time he yep. comes up, he wants to go fishing. So, um, yeah, so that's, uh, it's all good, yeah. Um, well, let's talk about some of these challenges that, um, that you met and, and dealt with over the years. Um, McLeod River, uh, as we talked about earlier in the, your bio when I, I read that. Um, sure. So what were the challenges uh, there? What brought that to your attention? Um, how did you get involved with that? Well, uh, I got involved because I was part of a, a, a group of scientists who were um, had become part of the board of the local chapter of the Nature Conservancy. At that time, the Nature Conservancy, it's hard to believe, was a relatively small organization where most of the work was done by chapters which are almost like independent organizations. Well, Northern California chapter was um, was the one I was working with, and they were given by the McLeod River Club six miles of the river and the land on both sides of the river uh, to manage as a preserve. Um, and they were, everybody was sort of flabbergasted by this, but what has happened was that the, the members of the McLeod River Club is very some of the wealthier people in California, uh, were found that they were being taxed as inventory for the old growth Douglas fir that was on the in the riparian forest along the uh, the river. If they realized that they gave away the upstream part of the of the forest they owned, that was places where they didn't fish, that uh, they could save huge sums of money by not having to pay taxes on that inventory. So they turned it over to the Nation Conservancy, and the Nation Conservancy essentially said, now what do we do? Because they realized it was, this was a, a very special river. So I was on the board, and I said, I want to work up there. It's one of those places that's been in my sights ever since I came out to California. It's really a place I, I, I would like to work. So we found, got some money from Trout Unlimited, 
and I hired a couple of graduate students, and we spent two summers, and sometime in the winter, too, working on the um, on the trout populations in the river and trying to find out what were some of the best management strategies for the Nature Conservancy. And, uh, of course, we discovered what's pretty obvious today is that if you have a good fishing spot to fish, if you don't provide access to that for legal anglers, illegal anglers will come in. And it's much better off to have high-end fly fishermen coming in there because they will protect their fishery and they will they will essentially be patrolling it for you if you let a few few in every day. Uh, and so that sort of became the um, the rule for the Macaud River entry was that they were allowing 15 people a day. That was very rare in the country at that time to do something like that. And also especially it was hard for the Nature Conservancy because they're where they were mostly run by people who thought of preserves as being sacred. It would be the kind of places you keep people out. And my argument was, you're not going to keep people out. They're going to be in there regardless. And so why not set it up so that uh, um, you can make it work with, with anglers? And especially then, as I said, that, that's work on making this a catch-and-release fishery, which there I don't think there were any in California at that time. Uh, so catch and release could also fit better with the Nature Conservancy's uh, the, their philosophy at the time. Uh, right. And that meant I had to spend quite a bit of time going into Sacramento lobbying the Department of Fishing Game to do this because it's uh, hard to believe again, but at that time a majority of the um, fisheries biologists were not enthusiastic about wild trout or uh, uh, catch and release fishing. So it was an interesting experience. It got me tuned into the politics of trout in California. <laughs> Which was only the beginning, I'm sure. But, uh, yeah, the so there um, the Nature Conservancy became your project to figure out how that water was best used. Now, what, were those wild trout there at that time? Oh, yeah, beautiful, beautiful wild trout. I mean, they, here you have this, this river that has a little bit of cloudiness to it because it actually... Uh, the water in the river drains Mount Shasta, which is a volcano, and there's a little bit of silt from the volcano in the water at all times. So the so these trout were living in in water that was a little bit dark, and it really brought out their colors for some reason. These are just gorgeous trout. It also meant that for um, the evening hatch of insects was sort of suppressed, because or at least from a fish perspective, because they couldn't once once the lights got off the water, the trout couldn't see as well. It was much harder for them to feed. So, anyway, it was a, became a, a very interesting study in how do you manage this river for these these wild trout, and they're very slow growing too. Again, it's glacier water coming off of Mount Shasta, so it was cold, meant the trout were slow growing, and the biggest trout in there were actually big brown trout. They were coming up from uh, Shasta Reservoir, which is where the McLeod River flowing into, coming up to spawn, uh, sort of behaving like salmon almost. And those trout then became very prized by the anglers as well. I bet, I bet. And uh, so today uh, the, the McLeod is a healthy fishery and, and doing fine? Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's impressive. You, it's, it's still managed pretty much the way we set it up back in the 1970s. This conservancy has greatly improved parts of it. They now take their, when they have a special person there who they want to um, cater, they, they want to court for funding, sometimes they take them down to the Cloud River if they like to fish. 
I mean, it's just, it's just a lovely spot. I used to go, yeah. when my kids were small, we would go there just to, just to hike and to do a little bit of fishing. But it's, uh, you feel like you're really out in the wilderness there. Yeah, so that's an interesting situation where um, the, the challenge is really how do we manage this for the future to maintain the, the beauty, the fish, uh, the fishing, and make it available to, to the public as well, right? So, yeah, okay, good, good. Well, let's take a quick break here, Peter, and when we come back, we'll, we'll talk about uh, Putaw Creek and uh, okay. what the challenges there were. Um, so uh, hang tight with me, and we'll be right back. Sure. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams, and just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience in coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach and kayaks on pongas and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Peter Moyle about fisheries conservation now and in the future. And if you'd like to ask Peter a question, go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and uh, use that question box there to send in your question. And we'll try to answer as many of them as we can tonight. Um, okay, this is, um, oh, well, I'll throw this in here now. We got a question from Ron Briggs in Columbia, Maryland, on the internet here, Peter. Um, sure. He says, what can our TU chapter do in this COVID area to involve students in the high school ages. Ooh, that's this is really hard because of the of, of the COVID. Uh, because it's hard to get people outside to do things. Um, I would actually, if you can work it out, is try to um, see if you can figure out a way to take small groups out and with wearing masks and uh, proper separation. I think you can still teach them some of the basics of fly fishing. Or just to walk along a stream. That's one of the things I've been doing with my grandkids, is is, is to take them out hiking along a stream. Uh, we remain, we wear masks and keep the proper distances because it's, it's on on Puna Creek, which is on on the campus here. So there are other people out there. But just to be creative and get them out. The important thing is to get them out, and at <laughs> at the very least. Um, Get them, even if they can't fish or anything, get them out into, into a place where there's water and there's air and the wind's blowing and so forth. That just makes a difference. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry, that can't be very specific, but it's, I empathize with, with that problem because yeah, you need to get kids some, out. could probably do some cleanup projects, too, and socially distance properly. Um, sure. You know, uh, and maybe some structure work and so forth. Um, and I don't know. I'm wondering if he's getting at to how do you get high school students interested in being involved in a TU chapter? Um, have you had any experience in trying to develop interest in high schools? 
not, not actually just mostly with my own kids. But uh, but you know the nice thing about being at a university is that we always are getting high school students coming by asking for to work with projects and so forth. So that in the past I was able to uh, send them out with some of my graduate students who were doing projects, so they could work with them and get some experience. Um, that is one one of the big to me the big thing is if you want to get students interested in working with fish, you've got to get them out where the fish are. Um, and unfortunately, at the University of California, I used to take high school students out with me all the time and have them in my lab even, but the university decided high school students were too much of a liability, so they stopped allowing us to do that. You know, I Obviously, now we do it with freshmen and sophomores and so forth, but uh, high school students uh, just don't get that chance. And that's really too bad because increasingly so many of our students are urban. You know, it used to be in terms of rural. If you're an urban student, how do you get out to experience the outdoors uh, and get those kind of experiences that turn people into biologists or conservationists? It's, it's very hard. Yeah, or just interested in the outdoors, period. Um, I mean, I was brought up in a family that was always involved, you know, in the outdoors with fishing and doing yeah. stuff. And, 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 so and that's pretty, typical. The closest thing yeah. you can do now is sometimes is just watching watching these outdoor programs, or the Planet Earth programs on TV. But it's even yeah. that's just not the same. <laughs> yeah, and, and I talked to my partner Julie, who's very interested in the outdoors and, and hiking and exercising and doing everything. And I said, "Did your family were they involved with this um, when you were a kid? Did they take you camping?" And she says, "No, not at all, nothing." And uh, her, she got. Uh, turned on to the outdoors by being a, a brownie and a Girl Scout and going camping. Yeah. So yeah, that, these that, things that we do, do work, you know, for some people. That's the only opportunity they'll have. Uh, sure. To, to yeah, I, that's why I'm glad that my 13-year-old my granddaughter is um, a Boy Scout now. They don't call them Boy Scouts. They call them just Scouts now. Yeah, okay. But, but they're, they're still they're doing their scouting merit badges um, to the distance learning protocols, they aren't going to get actually no. getting outside. Yeah, so yeah, not the same. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's talk about Puta Creek. Now, you said that's on the university property there, right? Yeah, well, flows past the university. It's actually uh, uh, it's a completely artificial stream in many respects. It's it's a section that um, flows past uh, the university starts below Monticello Dam, which is a very large dam upstream that has a huge reservoir behind it. Then it flows for eight miles um, of cold water where, where there's a blue ribbon trout fishery. And then at the end of that, there's a diversion dam that sends most of the water off to farms and cities. And then below that diversion dam, the creek starts up again. Only when I first started getting involved in it, they weren't releasing water from the dam, so the lower creek was drying up. And that was one of my uh, one of the very interesting experiences I had is working with the university and working with people to try to re get a living stream going again uh, in the lower creek. Because it, my first experience on that creek was walking out there shortly after with my wife shortly after we arrived here at Davis. Going to the creek, said this is good. Said, I'm looking for a place to take my classes, and here's this creek on the university property with gravel mining machinery in the middle of the creek, completely barren of vegetation, 
and yet there's a single beaver swimming up in a trickle of water that was going along one side of the um, of the bank there. And I, I sort of said, oh, this is hopeless. And so I, I, except for having student projects once in a while, I just sort of forgot about it. And then a bunch of us started saying, you know, we don't have to accept this. The first thing we did was to get, get a commitment from the university to stop mining gravel out of the creek. And once that happened, the vegetation started to grow and became more attractive. Um, at the same time, the, the, you know, the, the banks uh, everywhere along the creek were lined with Detroit riprap, which is old car bodies uh, and old refrigerators. Uh, oh, goodness. So an organization was formed called the Pewter Creek Council. That was main interest was getting rid of all that trash which they managed to do. And again, that took 10 years, but it basically made the, the creek start looking more attractive again. And then uh, we had a drought, which the creek was drying up, and we realized that um, the creek was drying up because the water was being shut off completely. Rather, they used to, the, the Solano uh, Water Agency would release a little bit of water, um, but now they're shutting it off completely. So. That resulted in a lawsuit in which you had the university, the city of Davis, and the Peter Creek Council getting together to say, we want more water in that creek. And the lawsuit was won. That was in uh, 1996. And the reason that was so important is that once you got water in that creek, the transformation was just miraculous in terms of how rapidly vegetation starts coming back, and especially if you start encouraging it, uh, the water comes back, and then the, the thing about that happened, I was an expert, the expert fish witness during the, the trial that resulted in more water on the creek. And I, I was able to do two things. One was design a flow regime for the creek. And the other one said, if you use this flow regime, I said, and this is, you know, you're in the courtroom, you're telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I said, if you institute this basic flow regime, we will get native fish back. Uh, in, in the creek, we'll have a trout fishery right below the dam, and there will be a, a whole group of native fishes that are neglected would come in in the next eight to ten miles, and then the lowermost reaches you would be would be warm enough so you'd have a bass fishery, um, and that all worked out. That was the surprising thing, uh, and I even got to publish a bunch of papers on it, which, from a professional perspective, was really good, but it was really amazing to see a creek to sort of come back a lot of it on its own just because you add water and you have a creek uh, yeah. once you have a creek with water flowing in it it attracts people and now the problem the university has is too many people are going down to the creek <laughs> they're, they're trying to make it into sort of a preserve uh, and uh, we're, we're we're trying to figure out how do you manage this now um, uh, Careful so, what you it, wish for, huh? Yeah, yeah that's wish right. For, that's yeah. right. But well, it, that, it's, that, very, that, it's very satisfying to see a creek that go from being essentially a ditch to being a living stream. Uh, that's that's really yeah, that's quite really yeah, the accomplishment. Deal. And that that beaver, he had hope way back when. He had, he had hope, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the important thing about this, also from a, a, a broader perspective, is that one of the the, the basis for the lawsuit was a part of the um, a legal issue because it was Section 5937 of the Fishing Game Code, and that little bit of code, which is about a hundred years old, said the owner of a dam has to leave fish in good condition below the dam. Well, no one really knew what fish in good condition meant. 
so I defined it. Um, and uh, that was what the court adopted in the Peter Creek decision. And then that became the way, uh, that, that same um, way of looking at the stream was adopted when the San Joaquin River restoration uh, project started. That was a difference, a lawsuit by the National Resources Defense Council against uh, Triant Water Agency. Um, and then, as I was the expert witness there as well, again, putting it, talking about restoring fishing, good condition below the dam, and that eventually was adopted as well. And now the San Joaquin River, it's a 150-mile-long river, is now in the process of being restored to a living stream. And the first and part both, was getting that water flow going. Uh, yeah, and providing the, providing the evidence that you, that would provide the legal basis for it. And now in Peter Creek, we have a small salmon run that's come back, that's developed. And in the San Joaquin River, uh, they're working very hard. They spent a huge sum of money on that river because it was so bad. But they're getting the first spring run Chinooker back in that river in this past couple of years. Uh, well, so if you work hard enough... Yeah, that just both happened. Those cases, uh, they happened uh, naturally. These salmon runs. I mean, they just. Well, in the case of San Joaquin River, they built a hatchery. They first fish have come back because for there the salmon were completely extinct. And this was a spring run, which is a, uh, a very different than the fall run, which are in Peter Creek. So that took some real effort to get the run going. But everybody was happy that here's. Uh, you, you, know, you had a 50-mile length of stream, 60 miles of it, which were dry almost all the time. You now had water flowing over that entire 150 miles, and somehow a few salmon managed to figure it out and get back. <laughs> well, so you got to give some credit to the fish, too. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So there uh, you basically had a dry riverbed as well to work with. Um, and it sounds like the first step was, was getting the water flowing. Um, That's right. And Jay Murakoshi uh, in Fresno wrote in, and he says, what part of the San Joaquin River is restored? Uh, he says, I, I fish it quite often since I only live minutes from the river. Uh, it's, I think he's saying is the section of the San Joaquin that runs through Millertown Dam. Yeah, yeah Millertown yeah, Dam oh, is the... Uh, uh, it is the main dam on the, uh, on the on the lower San Joaquin, and unfortunately, that dam, the the reservoir, covers up the best spawning grounds for spring run Chinook salmon. But on the other hand, there's about five or six miles below the dam. Not maybe five or six. That's an exaggeration. Three or four miles below the dam, um, we still have some deep pools and still have some spawning gravel. Some of that has been restored, which is one reason you can expect. There's some actually places for spring run Chinook to hold out, to hang out. Cause they have to they have to come up in the spring and survive in deep pools all summer long before spawning. There's some of that habitat is still there, so um, it's the uh, that that's what gives you the potential then for restoring uh, the spring Chinook. So. Is that still in process then, the San Joaquin? Yeah, it's uh, still in process. I sorry, I forgot the question, which is what, what, what reaches are we talking about? The reach up between about the first two or three miles below Fryant Dam, um, historically, have always had water in them because they had to release water for the for some farmers along the river who had riparian, old, really old riparian rights. 
but then after that the river was just allowed to dry up. Um, but the, the, there was a trout fishery, there was, there was a trout hatchery there, there was a trout fishery in the reach below the dam. And I used to take my students out there, when I, I taught at Fresno State for three years, uh, I'd take my students out there and we would do various kinds of fisheries investigations and so forth. But now, say we now have water during most years, during dry years it's a bit problematical, but th there's water the, the last couple of years, there's the, I'm pretty sure the entire channel has been watered all the way from Friant Dam all the way down to the mouth of the Merced River, which is the official ending of the restoration project. Uh, the Merced River is a tributary, and then that flows in, into the uh, San Francisco estuary. So it's, um, it's going to be quite a while before the, you get a really healthy stream there. But already in some areas, some of the native fishes are coming back. And you're going to have fisheries for um, bass and sunfish and so forth in many areas. And you're going to, if the people who live along the river in some of these small towns are going to have a living river to recreate in. And that's really something. Yeah. And you're, you're also going to see riparian vegetation come back. So you'll start seeing trees and so forth. Um, yeah. And that's, that's good for all, all kinds of critters, including one of my favorite ones out there is the riparian brush rabbit, a cute little rabbit, really really short ears that likes really dense vegetation along rivers. Hmm. So it's things like this that are rewarding. <laughs> yeah. So so did I get? Am I? There are two dams on that river, uh, Millerton and. Well, well, Millerton is the main, the lowermost dam. Uh, the, right. the San Joaquin River drains the um, uh, highest, the high Sierras, essentially. So there are a whole bunch of um, power dams above, uh, hydroelectric dams above Millerton. And Millerton is the oh. main dam that's used for water supply. Okay. So that, that's, that's why you, you have to say you really can't go above Millerton in terms of restoration. Because one thing, the upstream dams have produced really valuable electricity, but also there are just so many of them. Uh, yeah, so there's no no place for fish to migrate. And uh, yeah, um, and I, yes. I suspect a lot of a lot of people would not want that anyway, because you have nice wild trout fisheries in many of those reaches up above the above the dam. <laughs> so, is there any um, ongoing challenges for the San Joaquin? I mean, is it just let nature take its course now? Is it well, well, well you, basically the challenge is it has to be intensively managed. You know, think of a river that's been without water for 50 years, 50 or 60 years, where the farmers have essentially been able to ignore it. All you needed was were a few flood control channels uh, to allow floodwaters to pass by in case you got really heavy rains. And so suddenly you have to restore a channel uh, to a place where it can support riparian vegetation and uh, brush rabbits and so forth. So yeah, that's an ongoing process and it's going to take quite a bit of time. But the results will be sort of like we've seen in Puta Creek, a, live, a nice riparian, a nice stream ecosystem in your backyard. Um, and that's and then, uh, then the, the that's management the, kind of the, the people, right? Becomes, yeah, uh, that's right. <laughs> and then that so also gets people excited about about, about nature again, and maybe even becoming biologists. <laughs> so, in both 
Kuta, Kuta Creek and uh, San Joaquin River, um, did you have to do extensive research and study? Uh, to, you know, you had mentioned in the, the legal, as you were a, um, you know, a witness in, in, the, in the court trials. Uh, did you have to back that up with a lot of research and, and science? Oh, oh yeah, well, we did that. Uh, the, the good thing was actually to me. I always tell the students when, I, when we had field trips down to Peter Creek, was that the only data at the time they started the litigation for Peter Creek, the only data was data that I had that I had collected with my classes. I was going down to Peter Creek, taking thirty or forty students at a time doing a blitz of sampling of fish uh, on, on university land. So, and then we do that every year as part of classes. So we ha I had 10 years' worth of data by the time the trial started. And that was the, that, that data, it was showed when the creek got really low or dried up, fish disappeared. And then um, if you had an extended period, period like three or four years of, uh, of high flows in the creek, you'd get native fish back and even trout appearing. Uh, that was the only data that anybody had uh, until we started collecting new data. So that was helped convince people during the trial. And, and I, I suppose and, and moving on to like the San Joaquin, you can point back there and say, hey, look what water did. Uh, if we put water in, in this river, right. we may have similar results, right? Or, or yep, that's right. And of course now because it's, it's a, a very expensive project, there's, a, there's pretty intensive monitoring going on in, this, in, the, in the San Joaquin too see what's happening there. Yeah. But that's what you have to do in California, unfortunately, in so many areas, is, is do some major major work to um, get the streams flowing again. And sometimes that involves taking down dams, even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess there's more and more of that happening. Um, yeah, the, um, well, the whole water rights issue, you know, um, uh, this trip I just took down to uh, Las Vegas, uh, you know, we started in Colorado next to the Colorado River and ended up down in Las Vegas and then coming back up and meeting up with the Colorado at the head of the Grand Canyon again. And, um, but there is so much management of that water taken in and oh, out yeah. of the Colorado River. Um, uh, it's amazing it's still living. <laughs> but uh, I say, Well, every drop of water in that river has somebody's name on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And literally, yeah, yeah, that's just it. And we just get to kind of use it, play in it while it goes by, and uh, goes to, to the address it was uh, designated for. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, let's take one of the take one of those right. float trips down the Grand Canyon. You uh, know, if which we which I've done with student with classes again. You always have to remind them that of what's going on, what's behind these flows, why you have high flows in the summer, uh, and why you have trout fisheries in a place where historically the water was neither clear nor cold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, that um, Lee's Ferry there, uh, Glen Canyon fishery there, which is a tailwater, mm -hmm. uh, and I was asking Terry Gunn there about, um, uh, I said, well, it's this is mainly a rainbow fishery, isn't it? And he says, well, yeah, but we've, we've had a lot of, the browns have been coming on strong. He says, we've got like, you know, uh, you know, 20, 30-inch browns now hunkered down in here. Sure. And, uh, but now, he says, I don't know if this if it was a matter of uh, law already or if they were talking about it, but um, I guess the Fish and Wildlife is putting a, a bounty on brown trout. 
uh, and to the tune of about forty dollars a fish. Because oh, I, I had, must have been I hadn't heard that, but what I do know what was going on down there, uh, a little bit lower down, uh, especially where the Little Colorado River comes in, uh, there was a, a major program using electrofishing boats to capture and kill rainbow trout because they were competing with the native chubs that were in the river that were using the right. river for spawning. So, get it, the weird things we get ourselves into under these artificial systems where yeah. you, you actually have to sometimes remove desirable fish in order yeah. to make, make room for the natives that are orig- originally there. Yeah, and there's that uh, gray area in between the fisheries. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and um, so I guess that's the problem. I guess the browns are going downstream a bit and getting a bit of dinner and lunch and breakfast and uh, getting fat and happy, and, uh, and the fish and wildlife aren't too keen on that right now. So, so yeah, that's a balancing act anyway. Well, listen, I have to take another break here, so hang with me, Peter, okay. and we'll uh, be right back. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They've been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I've ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kick boats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, BigSkyInflatables.com. For the listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, we're talking with Peter Moyle about fisheries conservation now and in the future. If you'd like to ask Peter a question, just go to our homepage at Ask About Fly Fishing. Dot com and uh, put your question in that box, and we'll uh, see if we can't answer it on the show tonight. So um, we've got a couple uh, questions come in here on the Internet. Uh, Jay Murakoshi, who had submitted a question earlier, says, most of the salmon that are in the river right now were pen-raised by the students from UC Davis. The trout planting in the San Joaquin hasn't happened for at least 10 years, but the hatchery is still there. I did catch a salmon a few weeks about a few weeks back at Lost Park, Lost Lake Park. So I don't know if you have any not really yeah, a question, but the comment. Yeah. Well, Lost Lake Park is um, about a half mile below uh, Bryant Dam, and that's right. That area in there is where they want the Springer and Chinook to spawn naturally. The fish that are coming up on their own to the, both Tudor Creek and the um, San Joaquin are, are fall runs. You know, those are the ones that are in, they're products of other hatcheries probably, but they're not products of the uh, uh, San Joaquin hatchery. Uh, you know, there's a trout hatchery there at Fryant, which is used mainly to support recreational fisheries, I think, mainly in the reservoir itself. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. Of, of course, I could say something about the Lost Lake, it was, uh, which was a... A, a small lake uh, creating a gravel pit that was used to, um, the gravel was used to build the dam. Uh, I used to take the students out there and we would do a creel census to find out what the people were catching because they were planted, they planted trout in the in the lake for people to catch. Um, 
we found a number of people who were perfectly happy to catch golden shiners, a large minnow, or um, uh, a very small sunfish. And we asked them about this. They said, well, well we're mostly interested in, in feeding our cats or putting, having fish to bury in the garden to improve our, improve our tomato plants. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, all kinds of reasons to go fishing. Yeah, I guess so, I guess so. Um, Bill McCartney, I don't know if you know much about uh, this or not, but maybe you can give him some input. Uh, he's in Kentucky. says, the impact of invasive species has caused tremendous concern among those of us who fish the Ohio River. Your comments about what happened at Putaw Creek gives me hope about the future. Do you know what progress has been made to deal with invasive species in the Ohio River or elsewhere? No, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with what's going on in the Ohio or, or many of these other rivers, but there's a huge concern. Um, the main thing in the East Coast rivers initially has been getting rid of, of getting rid of pollution, both from sewage and from waste from uh, manufacturing plants, and many of those rivers have now have, have greatly improved. But uh, again, in many any place you have large dams, if you can improve the flows, if you can do, you can do studies, which you can figure out what's the flow regime that will work best for the fishes you want, uh, you can, and you can convince people to manipulate the flows, that's often a good way to do restoration, or at least, this, at least from a fish perspective. Uh, but the fish need the right kind of flows. It's like our native fishes need high flows in the spring for spawning. So it's essential to provide that for the fish. And I, I know that in many of the East Coast rivers, they have, they have different species of fish have different spawning times. So you have, you have to figure out what flows there and what time of year work best. Unfortunately, the fish that get the most attention, and actually in the East now it's increasing the, the, it's increasingly the um, clams, the um, uh, mussels that are getting the attention, those are the these species are the ones that get the water deservedly so, but it it makes it can be very frustrating at times for fishermen. Usually, yeah. if you provide water though for the mussels and the darters and the minnows, you also find it improves the fishery as well. Yeah, yeah. And when you've got uh, multiple species all inhabiting the same area, I suppose it makes it more complicated. Uh, uh, some being maybe native and some maybe not being native. Sure. Um, uh, to try to manage those all together, yeah. Because um, just talking about the San Joaquin, what you, you said, there's, you've got trout, you've got salmon. Um, uh, Jay mentioned stripers, even. Uh, maybe that's yeah, a which are not native. <laughs> yeah, which is not native. Yeah, yeah. So a lot. Of that's okay. Are... I mean, the the, the fact the fact is, in California, you know, we're we're one extreme in the whole fish business, in that. Um, a lot of places, a lot of places I work, like in the Sacramento, San Joaquin Delta. Everywhere you go, and with different sampling techniques, from hook and line to nets and so forth, you find that the fish fauna is a mixture of native and non-native species. And a lot of these non-native species, like striped bass, have been around since the 1870s. So um, you have a fish that have essentially become completely adjusted to California. And what we found in doing studies of the interactions between native and non-native fishes, that the native fishes that are left um, have figured everything out, too. The natives and the non-natives essentially get along. And if you study the 
the communities of fishes and how they interact with one another, you find it's very similar to a community of fishes that evolve together. So fish are remarkably, uh, have remarkable abilities to adjust to new companions and, and altered environments, but you can't push that too far. Yeah, yeah. Now, stripers uh, on the West Coast were brought in. I mean, none of them are. Yes. Aren't yeah, they came from the Hudson River in 1878 and 1879. Um, and that's an example of a fish, though, which is well acclimated to California. You know, in, in my career as a doing working on fish in California, I started out, you know, thinking that striped bass were essentially a fish you would like to get rid of because they're a non-native predator. Then as I began, if I started studying the system in a broader context and realizing that the native and non-native fishes who had been together a long time had sort of figured things out, I came to realize that the striped bass was one of the best indicator species we now have in the San Francisco estuary because it um, needs the Sacramento River for spawning. It needs flows in the river for spawning. Uh, it, the juveniles need to uh, come to be washed downstream and live in, a, in an intermediate part of the estuary. Then the then the large, the larger fish, uh, wander all over the entire estuary. It's a very large estuary, and many of them, many of them even go out to sea. So here you have a fish that, while it's non-native, needs an entire functioning estuary to complete its life cycle. And so my my current approach on with striped bass is to say this is a fish we should be managing in a positive way because it's the reality is our system is so changed that yeah. we have a, here's a fish that lives can live with that change and can tell you uh, how healthy the system is from a biological perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting, yeah. And um, and I take it their, their presence in all these areas in the estuary and the river indicates a healthy fishery in general. Yes, they're, the they're a pretty sensitive well. species. They're a really active fish. Uh, they require pretty good oxygen in the water. They're in the juvenile stages require, um, have to have lots of plankton and uh, zooplankton and small shrimp to feed on. Uh, so you, all these things you'd like to see in a healthy system is, is needed to support the striped bass through its entire life cycle. There's a question that uh, Bernard Yin uh, sent in. Um, he's in Los Angeles. Uh, he says, hi, Peter. I think this is great that Ask About Fly Fishing is featuring on the program. My grandfather bought for me the first edition of your Inland Fisheries of California book back in the late 70s. And I use it as a reference as a young angler, as much if not more than just about any other publication. I've also uh, I also have a much more recent version, and it's great to see how the book and the content evolved. It's hard to pick a topic to ask of you, so I will start with an open-ended one. Could you share with us an entertaining anecdote or two of any fish, <laughs> preferably native, that have rebounded dramatically or have shown up in an interesting spot? For example, let's pretend Sacramento perch suddenly were all over Frank's tract in the Delta and thriving. <laughs> I hope that makes sense, but uh, you must have some interesting stories. Well, um, certainly the striped bass story is actually one in terms of a personal perspective of my attitude towards it changing from being negative to being positive over the years as I learned more about it. And um, 
um, I guess on the opposite perspective is is the um, surprise I got when I started working with Delta smelt. Uh, you know, this is a small fish that lives, only place it lives is in the San Francisco estuary. Um, and when I first started, came to Davis and was looking for an easy fish to work with that I could publish on as an assistant professor, I, I found that the Department of Fish and Game was sampling these smelt, and they're getting literally hundreds in their monthly samples. So I said, lots well, of perfect fish to study that, along with the long fin smelt. So I started out studying it as an abundant species, learning all about its life history. Then I started my own sampling program, and I suddenly realized that in this program I had developed studying the fishes of Susun Marsh, which is part of the uh, part of the estuary. The delta smelt had virtually disappeared from my samples. Um, then I started looking around, looking back at the, going, go, look, talking to the Department of Fishing Game, looking at the, the sampling programs I'd worked with them on before. They'd also found that the smelt had pretty much disappeared uh, or become very, very rare. And now the smelt's on the verge of extinction. So here's a species that in my short lifetime working in the system has gone from being one of the most abundant fish to being a species in which it's probably going to go extinct in the next year or two. Uh, that's sort of a depressing story, but it does show you the kind of things that are going on in that system. What are your, uh, I'd like to come back to the Delta, but this just raised a question because I've thought about this as well. What are, what are your thoughts about preservation um, of species? In other words, um, we know that, you know, through the evolution of, of the earth and, and the, the animals and plants and so forth, it's constantly changing, and there have been many animals and plants that have gone extinct. Um, when do you see a point where there's a line drawn? That I mean, do we always try to preserve everything? When do we let nature take its course? Does nature change, and we need to change with it? Or, what's your view on that? Well, realistically, things are going to go extinct because of, of the way we've, we've done such a lousy job of managing the environment. You know, the Endangered Species Act has prevented extinctions. It's really quite remarkable how few extinctions we've had in recent years, and it's mainly because of the Endangered Species Act. But they take species down to the brink, and then they sort of hold on there. Uh, so I'm not optimistic uh, in the future. But... It's really it's what reflected in the in the in the Pewter Creek work. Well, if we want to have these species around in the future, you've got to have their habitats, and you've got to have a variety of habitats for a variety of species, and throughout California. And one of the things I've always realized is that you have to be selfish about this in the sense that and convince people that having healthy waterways that support native fish uh, and fisheries is that's essentially good for people. That means the water quality is high. It means that there, there's a, uh, trees out there that are taking in the carbon. They're making the air easier to breathe. So there's so many things. We get so many benefits from these ecosystems that it's really worth it to invest in streams and rivers and riparian systems that have a high degree of, of function. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been listening to a book on Audible uh, called Origins, um, and it kind of goes through the history of Earth from the beginnings to now. But they said that, uh, well, he said in that book that 
when you take and look at man's presence on Earth, you know, the short time that we've been here in relationship yeah. to the Earth, that we have the potential to cause more damage than, like, the, the huge meteor that hit the Yucatan and killed all the dinosaurs and, and those, because uh, we're just a blink of time in the, the history of the Earth, but man is having such a dramatic effect yeah. on Earth that the Earth has never seen anything like this before. <laughs> So I and that, and that, unfortunately, fresh waters are right at the, the peak of that effect. There's nothing, there's nothing more endangered than healthy aquatic systems because there's such huge demand for water. Uh, yeah. you, you know, just looking at California, where we have 129 species of native fish, including these wonderful salmon uh, species we have, 80% of them are in a downward decline. Uh, and, and about a third of them are already listed by state and federal governments as being threatened or endangered. So that gives you, tells you right away that the freshwater systems in California and worldwide are in the most trouble. Uh, and why it's so important to do things like working with Pewter Creek, or to take your local stream and do everything you can to keep it into a, a healthy functioning system. Yeah, yeah. Now, the Delta uh, was... The, the smell thing was, um, uh, is that something that you've worked on to bring the smell back, or were there other issues in the Delta that uh, are Well, the, the, the Delta smelt is what I've gotten the most attention for because I filed the petition to get it listed as an endangered species. And, of course, that means if you do that, you sometimes get blamed for all the water problems in the central California because you just didn't we didn't have that smelt screwing up the water, we would have a lot more water. Not true, of course, but that's what you hear. And there's a lot of, obviously, other fishes that are in similar shape, only just not, not quite as bad. And these are, and one thing you have to realize about California that's so special about this state is that when I say there are 129 native species in California, most of those fish occur only in California. Because uh, California is one of these places where we've been isolated from the rest of the world for a long time by mountains and so forth, so fish evolved right. in their own own directions. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, everything to the, uh, well, to the east, there's not much happening between <laughs> the Sierras and the Rockies, but... Uh, um, yeah, everything east of the Rockies is all kind of integrated in one shape, way, shape, or form. And well, that's because you have these huge, huge, huge watersheds like the Mississippi yeah. and so forth that encompass yeah, so much right. of the land. Exactly, exactly. Um, so let's talk about, um, well, we have a couple of other random questions, and I'm going to come <laughs> back to the climate here in a second. But uh, Phil McCartney in Kentucky, again, he says he grew up in Minnesota, and he's retained an interest in the fisheries there. And I would appreciate uh, hearing from Peter about what, what key factors that work and changes that have been documented there. For example, the walleye population declining while the smallmouth fishery booms in Billy Lacks Lake. Are there general principles that Peter might address to guide conservation efforts in warm water fisheries across the nation? So and you, when, before the show, we were talking about um, uh, some, some uh, the effects of chemicals up there, right, that uh, you wanted yeah. to make mention of? Well, uh, yeah, of course, that's one, one of the first things is simply reducing pollution. And it can be very subtle. What we were talking about before was like, like my, 
my father was very well known in, in Minnesota for uh, being one of the few people who understood in back in the 1940s uh, and before even that um, water chemistry is what really determines what fish are present and, and that different lakes have different chemicals in them naturally that determine what fish will be there uh, or what plants. And one of the big issues in Minnesota has always been wild rice. And um, he, he showed that wild rice only grew in waters in which you had less than 10 parts per um, million sulfite in the water. And that that became sort of a, turned into a state regulation that said in waters that naturally had sulfide um, levels that are less than 10 parts per thousand, or 10 parts per billion, um, that lakes that got polluted and increased that, well, increased that level, you had to cut back, you had to find the source of pollution and cut it back. Uh, and, the part, and the big sources of sulfide pollution are power plants, coal-fired power plants. And of course, they, they got very upset about that. And uh, the big, uh, so there were big arguments in the state recently about trying to figure out what should be the appropriate level of sulfides in the water. It's that one, one chemical, but it was a, a key one. And so when we're talking, like with with his uh, questions about walleye population declining and smallmouth booming, it, it, there are so many factors there. It's probably hard yeah, to say. Yeah, right. Could be pollution, could be climate, could be uh, invasive species, could be all kinds of things. Which is why you need, you need you need good scientists out there. All these agencies, you know, generally the fisheries agencies are underfunded, uh, and they never have an, have a, uh, enough good science available to them to manage things the way they would like to. And in so many places, knowing the basic water chemistry and knowing the, the what what species you want to aim for makes a big difference in terms of how yep. successful your management is, which is also why it's so important to control non-native species, too. The zebra mussel, for example, is still being spread, and it's, it's a, a problem in many, many lakes in the Midwest, and it's, unfortunately it's coming to California, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I know, out, out uh, here in the, the West, um, well, in certain places like Yellowstone and so forth, you can't wear belts, uh, soles anymore on your boots, you know, yeah. it has to be rubber uh, because of that. And and we went through uh, two boat checks uh, last summer on a trip, uh, one in Wyoming and one in Montana, uh, yeah. having to stop and have our boat inspected and so forth for those reasons. But, so but think of how new that is. Yeah, the zebra yeah. mussel has been around for a long time, but these boat inspections, which are going on in California, too, are quite are yeah. fairly new. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's the kind of things we have to have to put up with. Uh, in order to kind of ensure our our water stay as manageable as possible. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, um, tell us a bit about the Klamath uh, and uh, Shasta River, uh, which you said drains into it, because that's kind of one of the ongoing challenges that you're working on, right? And what's, sure. What's going on? There? Well, well, in, in the, the you know the Klamath is the third largest watershed and uh, river in California, and it used to be. Have salmon runs one to two million? Oh no, I'm sorry, around a million fish, and it's just the runs are now in the, in the thousands. And one of the first things that uh, cut off, the, reduced the salmon runs, 
was the construction of four dams on the river starting in, in the early 1900s. And these dams have completely blocked access to the watershed uh, in Oregon, which had a lot of big, nice spring-fed rivers. Um, so one thing that's going on is, is an effort is being made to, to, to get those dams torn down. And every time I think it's going to go, some roadblock gets put in the way. Um, but where we've been working uh, has been in the Shasta River, which is a major tributary to the Klamath. And the Shasta is a spring-fed river, has one dam on it, which is one dam I'd also like to see go. But again, it illustrates the kind of things you have to do to make try to improve things for salmon. Uh, in this case, the most of the water in the Shasta River was being diverted for agriculture. Uh, and this is cold spring-fed water, this kind of water, because it comes off of Mount Shasta, comes out of the ground. The water has been percolating underground for 50 or, or 100 years, so it's really been sort of pretty old water. Uh, and in order to get water back in the Shasta, cold water back in the Shasta River, essentially you had to buy a ranch that had the big springs on it. And the Nature Conservancy was considering this, uh, and what they did was come and talk to us as well as to help find money for studying the rivers. And they concluded that it was, it was a good investment to, to buy this ranch, even though it was horribly overpriced. Uh, in order to restore cold water to the Shasta River to get the salmon populations back again. There's still a lot more work that needs to be done up there, but that's an example of the kind of things that often need to be done is buy, repurposing water, essentially buying water rights or finding ways to get water back in streams. Again, it's sort of been the theme of my answers to most questions. you got to get you got to get water back in the streams, and the water has to be of high quality in order to get your fish back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's always the case. Um, uh, we have um, river here right, right down the valley from my house, North Fork and the South Platte. That they're actually bringing river over from the west, I mean water from the western slope through a tunnel. But the upper part of this river is is pretty much sterile because of minerals that are yeah. coming out of the ground and so forth. So um, I guess they're starting to look into that um, as to how we might make this fishery a you know, year-round fishery that is has bug life and so forth. Um, but, yeah, a huge challenge well, there as well. Yeah. You know, one of the really positive things, though, that's been happening in recent years, and Klamath brought this up, made me think of this again, um, is that a number of the uh, Indian tribes around the country are now getting involved in water issues uh, because they realize how much of their heritage depends on, on, on lakes and streams and so forth. And in the lower Klamath River, uh, the Western Rivers Conservancy, which is an organization that says sometimes to save a river you have to buy it, they worked out this amazing deal to acquire Blue Creek, which is the last large tributary that flows into the Klamath River, it's still in the fog belt, uh, so it stays cool all summer long and provides cool water for the lower river. They found a way to get this, to purchase this, very complicated finances, and then turn it over to the Yurok tribe for managing as a Yurok tribal sanctuary because the Yurok, Yurok people were historically uh, salmon culture. 
and they see um, managing the Klamath River and managing the tributaries to it for salmon will help them restore their culture. And I think you're seeing more and more of that going on as well, which is very positive because the, many of these tribes are discovering they have rights uh, to water and so forth that uh, in these old treaties that have been ignored for, for a long time. And this is something I see is very positive because they're starting to re restore rivers that benefit all of us. It seems like uh, with a lot of what you've told us tonight, a lot of these efforts uh, start out as kind of grassroots efforts locally um, and uh, grow from there. It's not like right. uh, the federal government's coming in and say, oh, we'll preserve this river. Uh, let's do it. It, it, it. There has to be some need locally to see the benefits of restoring these these, these waterways. Yeah, especially when sometimes restoring it means tearing down a federal dam. Yeah. <laughs> There was a question, I don't know if you know anything about this or not, because it's out of your area, but uh, Charles Phelps in Minnesota asked, uh, do you believe removing the lower four dams on the Snake River is the only way to save Idaho's salmon and steelhead? Well, that's a hugely complex issue. You know, there are, there are um, those, those dams are, are, have turned out not to be very functional, but they're very expensive to remove. Uh, and it definitely would, well, if they get, down, get improved, if they get removed, it will definitely help the salmon populations. And again, there's multiple runs of multiple species. But like everything else, there's, it's more than just the dams that are the problem. So there's a lot of issues that have to be dealt with simultaneously in the entire Columbia Basin, um, yeah. Yeah. which I don't think you want to get into <laughs> at this stage. It's, it's, yeah. uh, because uh, they're even dealing with marine mammal issues, for example, in, uh, in, in the Columbia River estuary. Um, how do you choose? Very complex. In, yeah, how do you choose your management between, do you try to get rid of these big um, sea lions or in order to save the salmon? That's not, not yeah. a very popular choice. Yeah, yeah. Um, question from Mike Fugazi in Colorado. He was uh, wondering about handling fish and so forth. Uh, uh, specifically trout, and um, he, uh, I'll just uh, kind of summarize his question. He's asking about your take on barbless versus barbed flies in terms of protecting the fish. And I, I know when we had talked about earlier, you, you did have an uh, opinion about that. And uh, there's a different approach, so could you uh, talk about that for a minute? Yeah, well, well the, the main thing I've noticed uh, with bar barbless versus barbed hooks is that it depends on where you're fishing. If you're fishing in a fairly pristine and not heavily, very heavily fished environment, I don't think it makes much difference because while you're more likely to injure fish with a barbed hook, uh, a lot that, and even that depends on how you handle the fish and how kind of experience you have in getting the hook out. Uh, but the fish if it, it can recover from those wounds. Uh, fairly readily. The problem becomes in places like uh, Pewter Creek where you may have uh, fish may be caught several times during a, a single summer. Uh, and there, that's where it's more likely, to, as far as I can tell, and I, there's nothing scientific about it, it's just seeing these fish. You see fish that have been caught multiple times and they tend to have, you know, their jaws don't look very good. Um, so that's where I would think a barbless hook would make a big difference in heavily fished waters where you're more likely to have repeat captures. 
too, yeah, you can reduce yeah. the injury to the fish. Also, the barb, barbless hooks come out of your skin a lot easier and out of your clothes a lot easier. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I think that's uh, that's a big consideration uh, for me. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, believe um, me, I've had that, I've had yeah. that experience, so not one to repeat. Yeah, yeah. Um, Larry uh, Edens in New Mexico wrote in, and he says, "How can conservation groups best attract younger members?" Our group, New Mexico Trout, has dwindled from 500 members to less than 200, mostly due to age. Our members are mostly over 60. We work on riparian zone habitat restoration in New Mexico, both boots on the ground and funding, and focus on the threatened Rio Grande cutthroat trout. The younger members don't seem to want to join. Many are wanting something out of joining our club, like swag, gear, etc. This seems to be a common problem among many clubs, including TU. Any ideas? Um, that's this, you know, you're dealing with a major societal issue. I mean, we have, we're raising generations of kids who just don't get out. And uh, as I said earlier, there's definitely nothing beats getting kids out in the environment to get them enthusiastic about doing things. Um, Pewter Creek, in, in our local situation, gets a lot of younger people out there. Usually they go, they're coming out with their parents. And then they join some, uh, join the Peter Creek Council or some other club, and then get involved too. Um, but it's uh, you know, it's just very hard to get people, get kids interested. You really, because the only way you do that is to get them out. And that, especially if their parents are not fishermen, are not fishing, or aren't aren't big on hiking or so forth, it's. Uh, uh, it's very hard to do. The way I look at it, you just have to get them out in the water. It's like when I take my granddaughters down to Pewter Creek. I have all these grand ideas of talking about ecology and uh, uh, the interactions among fish and insects and so forth. And they see these blackberries. They're waiting out in the creek. They see these blackberries growing alongside the creek. And they want to pick blackberries. And I realize, <laughs> you know, that's exactly right. That's what they should yeah. be doing. <laughs> yeah. So at least yeah. they're out there. Yeah, that's. But that's uh, right. I don't have any great, great, great advice to give on that at all. It just. Uh, yeah, and I just, I, um, I just got a uh, National Geographic, the latest National Geographic, and they're talking about handling the pandemic. And a young man wrote an interesting article about uh, being, you know, isolated and being stuck to the computer screen and. And that um, you know how people's lives will be changing, and they'll become even more isolated yeah. because of both computers and the pandemic, and how that you know will affect society. And of course, what you just talked about—how do you get people out when they're hunkered yeah. down over their computer and, and locked in because of a pandemic? It doesn't help things at all, you know. So, well, you know what? Yeah. What I'm what a piece of advice though I can give. Uh, that at least when this pandemic ends, is to really try to get outdoor education programs going in the schools. Um, I think a lot of schools have abandoned them as being being too expensive when you're short on funds. But if there's any one thing that that can get a lot of kids introduced to being outside in the environment and make potentially interesting things, is these outdoor programs. Even if they're out only camping or staying in a cabin or something for two or three days when they're outdoors and seeing, uh, being introduced to birds and fish and insects and so forth. Uh, those programs are something that's really good to do. Uh, yeah. and, that, and, and they're underfunded and they're often say, not funded at all. Yeah. One last question. We'll call it a night here. 
Hi, Dr. Moyle. My name is Andrew, and I'm 12 years old. I'm considering a career as a fisheries biologist. Any advice for things I should be doing now or things I even can do now at, at only 12 years old? Well, volunteering for any kind of, any kind of activity with a local environmental group, uh, especially a restoration group, is certainly a good way to do it. Try to get out fishing if you can. Uh, but the uh, other thing to do is to just, uh, even if you can't go out fishing, um, go get down to a stream somehow and, and start looking at the insects in the stream. Get yourself really tuned into what streams are like. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, one of the good things about this present era, there's a lot of information uh, out there available for amateurs on on, on, on what's the life in streams. Uh, and, and getting yourself in, uh, into those kind of things to understand if you have a choice on a school project, pick some, write about aquatic insects and what they do. Uh, anyway, but any way you can just get yourself immersed in that environment uh, and, and to learn about, um, learn about what's going on will make you, should be, make you even more enthusiastic about becoming a fish biologist. And maybe I really collection, appreciate collecting it. bugs and, and, and things like that, making your own collection. Yeah. Identification. It, 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 yeah, just being out there uh, and and seeing these insects and then connecting them with the fish, for example. Yeah. Uh, it's always, always a good thing to do. And so many of us as fly fishers need to do more of that as well. You know, we tend to want to get that line in the water and we should be spending more time trying to figure out what's going on than, than just... Well, I figure, you know, if you have that line in the water and, it's all, and you're being quiet, you, you, you absorb a lot just by being there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's all good. Let's put it that way. It's all good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we got to wrap it up here, Peter. Uh, just hang with me for a few more minutes. we got a few things to give away. Uh, when your membership to Fly Fishers International, subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. Um, and uh, give away a book uh, courtesy of Stackpole Books. So I've got a list of books from Stackpole that I can give away, and I will send that out to the winner. So hang tight, everybody, and see if you, you might win that. Um, sure. So um, just hang with me a little bit longer, Peter, and we'll finish things up. Sure, sounds Bristol, good. The Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. Devil mine still remains a threat to the region, and 2 million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry is united in this epic conservation battle. Thousands of fishermen and 31 Alaskan native tribes depend on Bristol Bay every day. Devil mine will poison Bristol Bay with over 10 billion tons of toxic waste, which threatens to destroy their livelihoods. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has just released their final environmental impact statement, opening the door for a permit to build Devil Mine. The only way to stop this is to act now. Anglers from across the country are joining the fight. Be one of them. Visit SaveBristolBay.org forward slash tell President Trump. Again, that's SaveBristolBay.org forward slash tell President Trump. And there you can learn more about what, uh, what's going on. You can voice your concern uh, and, uh, and get involved. So check that out. Again, SaveBristolBay.org forward slash tell President Trump. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our home page in the section in there tonight's show that says, what do you think of this show? Just click on the link and leave your comments. We really appreciate it. 
So now it's time to give away a few prizes. Um, the winners for our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. And if you didn't register for the show uh, tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show uh, so you don't miss out on a chance to win some of these great prizes we have to offer. And uh, if you are the lucky winner, we'll be contacting you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So first, we'll be giving away one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. And there you can learn about the organization. They serve, serve uh, fly fishers internationally, both cold water, warm water, salt water. You, they cover everything. Uh, so check them out. They're a great organization to, to be part of and to support. Um, and our winner for that is going to be David Johnson in New York. So congratulations, David. Uh, you are now uh, going to be a member of FFI. So uh, we'll get with you uh, later on that. Now, we'll also give away a subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can learn more, more about at amatobooks.com, another great publisher of books out there. So check them out, amatobooks.com. And um, our winner for that is Howard Solomon, also in New York. So two New Yorkers. So congratulations, Howard, on that subscription. And now we'll give away a book courtesy of Stackpole Books. Um, and uh, to win this, you will need to go to our homepage on the website and fill in that, that question box there with your answer, your name, and your location. And um, the uh, just clear my queue here. Uh, so the, uh, the question is going to be uh, name three of the fisheries that uh, we talked about with Peter tonight, three out of the five fisheries that we talked with Peter tonight, and we'll get you a book from courtesy of Stackpole Books. So Peter, it takes a second for them to hear that because there's a slight delay in the broadcast, sure. and then they got to type and uh, uh, <laughs> check their notes. So we, we see if anybody's paying attention tonight <laughs> and uh, see if we can't give away a book here. Um, in the meantime, I want to thank you, you know, f for being with us. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk and pick your brain tonight. And sure learned a lot about California fisheries, that's for sure. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I enjoy talking about California fish because things are applicable to the rest of the world. Yeah, definitely. We all have our issues no matter what, where we're at. And um, we're going to have to keep an eye on things, right? <laughs> Oh yeah, uh, and get, in, oh, get in, okay. your job. Everybody is get involved. So uh, I got the the first one here. I think we've got a good answer. Uh, it's Putaw Creek, uh, San Joaquin, and the Delta. So very um, good, those, very good. Yeah, yeah. we got a winner. That's <laughs> Jay Maricoshi uh, in Fresno. So Jay, uh, <laughs> get yourself a book. And Jay's been on the show too as a guest. Yeah, well, he's been on the show as because uh, he fishes down in Baja. So I picked his brain one uh, time early on, many years ago, about fishing in Baja. So we'll have to, well, uh, Jay and I are going to have to get together again and, and have another interview here. So, uh, so Jay, um, Jay, send me your, uh, in the same box, send me your uh, mailing address so that uh, we can have that. And then I will send you a list of books for you to pick from from Stackpole. So I got your email, and I can do that. So uh, thanks for paying attention, Jay. And it's in your neck of the woods. If you didn't get it right, you'd be in big trouble anyway. So, <laughs> so uh, congratulations. 
Um, hopefully all of you have found the, uh, the podcast archive on our website. And if you haven't, uh, just look for the link in the top line of our menu. You'll see uh, uh, there the podcast archive and all of our shows, over 315 shows now. You can search by keyword, keyword phrase like trout, tarpon, Madison River, uh, going to be Putal Creeks here shortly after we publish this show. So um, uh, lots of information to digest, that's for sure. Our next broadcast will be on August 19th, uh, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'll interview Lance Egan. And our topic for the show will be adaptive fly fishing, strategies for diverse water types. So Lance has had a passion for fly fishing for close to three decades. After representing Fly Fishing Team USA and 13 World Championships, this guy has experienced just about every fishing situation one might encounter. Listen in to hear how Lance breaks down the river into distinct water types, including pools, riffles, runs, pocket water, glides, bankside lies, and eddies, and learn his methods for hooking up effectively in each water type. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Douglas Outdoors, Baja Fly Fishing, Front Range Anglers, and Watermasters for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.